All right, everybody. Um, hello and good morning and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, I apologize. I did not come prepared to give my uh, little intro script, so I'm going to have to just read off my phone like the rude millennial that I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, my notes here tell me this is our seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival, which is hard to believe, but um, thank you all for being here. Um, and thank you especially for being awake this early in the morning. Um, we're gonna be talking about foster care and um, a number of the reforms that were passed last session and what we can look forward to next session. Um, just a couple of reminders. Um, one, please silence your phones. Um, that'll help us out up here. Um, and we're going to uh, save the last about 20 minutes or so, 15, 20 minutes for audience questions. So don't be shy. Um, you can approach either one of the back mics here. Um, just, I'll, I'll steal a line from my boss here. Just please make sure that your question ends in a question mark or then I have to cut you off and it's awkward. Um, <clears throat> this panel is supported by Upbring um, and those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the event's content or panelists or line of questioning. Um, yeah, and so with that, I think we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, I'll do the introductions. Uh, so over here on my far left, we have State Representative Gene Wu. The far left. Mm. He's a Democrat from far Houston. left. Whoops, <laughs> <laughs> let me move down here. That's funny. <laughs> That's well funny. played. <laughs> um, and then flanking him, we have uh, State Representative Cindy Burkett. She's a Republican from Sunnyvale. Um, <clears throat> Then we have uh, Representative Ina Minjares. She's a Democrat from San Antonio. Uh, and Commissioner Hank Whitman, who heads the whole DFPS uh, operation. And then uh, Representative James Frank. He's a Republican from Wichita Falls. Uh, thank you all for being here. So we'll jump right in. And um, Commissioner, if you don't mind, I figured I would uh, start by bullying you a little bit. Sure. Um, I'm used to that. <laughs> In the past, you've spoken very frankly about um, the challenges. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, challenges facing your agency, uh, but in 2017, DFPS, uh, if my if my memory is correct, got I think almost half a billion dollars in increased appropriations. Um, you know, reforms were made a, an emergency item by the governor. Um, but I was hoping you might sort of continue in that, uh, in that vein of brutal honesty and just give us a, a rundown of has the bleeding stopped and is, uh, are we, you know, how, how is DFPS really right now? Well, from one year to now, it has improved drastically. Um, the appropriations that we received from our, uh, our leaders uh, throughout the state the ones that took the, the helmet right off the bat are sitting with me right now. And they knew that we needed to do something drastic and, and get some more employees on the ground. The other thing that we did is that we had about 700 vacancies in the investigations positions that we needed to fill that we had not filled. So in combination with the 550 new investigators that we got and those 700 positions, there was 1,100 more caseworkers on the ground today than there was 15, 16 months ago. So what does that equate to? Our case, cases assigned to caseworkers have come down drastically. Uh, our turnover rate was in the 30s, extremely high. 
And that happens to be the same case for just about every DFPS throughout the nation. Every state has a very high turnover rate. It's a difficult job. Mm -hmm. So what we have now is, from that, high, from that 30 rate, we're at 18.2% turnover rate. It's almost in half. Our caseworkers are not leaving. We put other things into place, better training, better supervisor training, a combination of that, and in that appropriations that Edgar just talked about was a thousand dollar a month raise for caseworkers. In combination with all that, our caseworkers are staying. They're being appreciated more. Our staff, our executive staff knows where that problem was at. We did the easy fixes first and then we continue to grow on that. So that's where we're at now. And matter of fact, we just met with Nevada DFPS yesterday and they seen what we put into place and they have invited us to come to Nevada so that we can share how we've done that in 15 months because they're having the same problems as well. Um, well, we'll um, for, the, for the lawmakers on the panel and, and maybe Representative Wu, we'll, I'll start by picking on you. What's, uh, maybe we can engage in the same sort of self-evaluation, uh, but you know, looking at the legislature. So um, if, you, if you had to give a letter grade, say, to the 85th legislature on foster care and CPS, child welfare as a whole, sure. A through F, um, what do you give us? I think probably around the B minus because it's, we passed a lot of legislation that improved the system, but that's not where the real problem is. The real problem is always funding, funding, funding. Um, you know, we, we put an extra half billion dollars into it. Uh, I sat on Article 2 on appropriations talking about this stuff. Uh, I, I, I've seen the requests that the, the department has made about this is what we actually need to fund it. We've seen the, um, the LBB's predictions of, hey, this is what you actually need to make it match growth. Um, we didn't do that. We put a lot of money in, but it wasn't, it wasn't even close to what they had asked for. Um, and, you know, this is from an agency that's been shortchanged short for, I don't know, five decades. Um, and we're just now coming into um, this part where we're starting to put them more money, my fear is that we're going to start for, that we say, oh, well, well, we did it. And we're going to say, everything's fine, right? And then they're not going to get another pay raise for, for a decade, decade and a half. Mm -hmm. um, the concept of paying a person who works 60 to 70 hours a week, paying them $30,000 a year is mind-blowing. And you expect them to do a good job and you expect them to stay. I mean, even paying them $40,000 a year for, for a job that is easily over 50 hours a week, if you do it even halfway correct, is, is mind-boggling to me. Mm. So I think we did a lot of good work on legislation. We, we made this, the system better. Um, I know a lot of, especially like the stuff I passed, a lot, a lot of the attorneys who practice this are happier. Um, <laughs> but the overall system, is, it's all about money. Mm. Oh, I, I don't well, agree. What, what letter grade would you give? I, well, I, I would closer to an A, but to his last statement, it's not all about money, because we could throw twice the money at it if we don't change the system and improve the process and make sure that our caseworkers are feeling like they're being mentored properly, that they're getting post-traumatic stress you know, addressed, because think about it, what they're walking into. You're right, it's a hard job. They are walking into some things that we can't even imagine seeing. So we need to address that as well. But just to simply throw money at something and not change any processes or improve things for our caseworkers, improve, improve our foster care, 
doesn't solve anything. So if, saying, if, saying that we don't need more money, I wouldn't say that. But I think we made a big step in the right direction during a session when we were we were um, we had less money to work with. Mm. But I don't think that's all in it. Well, I'm curious if um, you know talking about systemic changes, what what specifically comes to mind? What would you? I guess looking to 2019, you get sort of one one reform passed, free ticket. What is it? What should it be? I think we have to expand on what we've looked at. I mean, Representative Frank can address that somewhat. When we look at we set CPS as their own agency so that they can work without, you know, having to go through several layers of bureaucracy. And James can yeah. address that more, but we're going to have to look at, you know, we set in place a, a committee of people to look at what we're doing, see how it's working. We always have to look at every single thing we do. Um, I think we need to put more emphasis on um, early prevention. You know, it's always easier. It's, the, the cure is always harder than preventing it in the first place. And we and we put some of that into place in a couple of bills that I had, and as well as SB 11. So I just I've, I think it's good for us to look as a whole to everything we're doing and to listen to the people that are the feet, you know, the, the boots on the grounds, and try to address those issues as we come up. Rosa Minjares, what do you think of uh, everything that transpired in the 85th session, and what grade would you give us? So I would I would be a B. <laughs> um, I think I, I praise Commissioner Whitman. Um, because he really, when he started, he hit the ground running. And what he did was he traveled the state and he went to talk to all the caseworkers and supervisors and really get in there and listen to that feedback. That's critical feedback. And he, when we uh, got into uh, the bipartisan work group that Speaker Strauss put together, because he understood this, this was an emergency item we needed to deal with, uh, he was there with us and he helped guide us. And we had very honest conversations about how we start even addressing these issues. Representative Wu was right. We have neglected uh, this, this area for so long, so it's going to take a while to fix it. Mm -hmm. But I think we are on, on a good path. And again, I hope we continue our, our discussions and Commissioner Whitman continues to speak to the caseworkers, uh, speak to every, all the, uh, everyone involved in the system to continue. Because if, if, if we have created something that's not working, we need to know that to fix that or to exactly. change that. Representative Frank? I'd say it's premature to give a grade because at the end of the day, we made some changes uh, that Commissioner Whitman and his folks are just now starting to implement and how well those get implemented. I, I do think uh, in talking to Commissioner Whitman and, and Commissioner Specia before him, we've given them the tools that they've asked for, right? They, they, wanted, they wanted more money. Maybe not 100% of the money, but we gave them, uh, I think, a tremendous amount more money so that they can pay good caseworkers. I think one of the things that gets overlooked is we need to get rid of bad caseworkers, too. Mm -hmm. um, the reality is a bad caseworker in our state causes tremendous damage, causes us to lose foster parents, causes us to have problems with kids, and we need to do both of those things. Uh, I hear stories all the time, and I know you all do, of, of caseworkers, and again, the vast majority of them are great. We need to pay them very well, and we need to exit stage left some of the other ones and I think by, by setting it up as a standalone agency we've given him uh, much more ability to manage his own people that fair uh, and, and nobody really ever likes to do that and, and really in the HHSC world we've created such hurdles that you almost can't get rid of bad employees which is very honestly is very damaging for kids uh, and so I think we've given them the tools but it's uh, you know and there have been some improvements and I think ultimately I hope that's what folks like yourself look at is, are we improving, not can we find one statistic here or there that, it, that is worse or that drops one month, but what is the trajectory? Because right now, we're starting in about the middle of the pack. Everybody thinks we're 
horrible and it's, the reality is there's just some very difficult situations. We're starting in about the middle of the pack if you measure us against all the states. Now that's not where we want to be. We would like to be excellent when it comes to CPS and we are moving that direction. So, um, Do you agree with, uh, I think it was Representative Wu's point, that by having spent so much money or you know, given, you know, increased the appropriation to DFPS so sizably this year that politically it's going to be more difficult in 2019? I mean, is this, is this the last time we're going to see sort of a, a funding increase of, uh, to this magnitude? Well, I think, I think to this magnitude, my guess is yes. Uh, and, and, and this is not the first time CPS has been addressed, right? This is about every, every, every decade or 12 years. There was a whole, you know, if you look back at the history, uh, and, I, and I think also if you look at the amount of funding that's gone in there, it's maybe not as neglected as uh, you might think. It, the, the funding has increased pretty dramatically. This is the biggest it's been done probably in, I guess, probably in 12 years, <laughs> percentage-wise, because it was, I believe, over a 20% increase. Yeah. I believe that's right. I, that, Commissioner, Commissioner, what's your take? I mean, you, you'll be the one sort of making the pit. Well, you or we'll see. If, I mean, you, you never know. I may be gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you will be. You will be the one. I've already that been was, threatened by the member there that they were going to chain me to the floor. Yeah, but uh, so, first of all, as stewards, good stewards of taxpayer money, uh, as a good manager should be, and as a good executive team. We, have, we, re, we evaluate everything that's going on within our department to see what works and what doesn't work. Is it a waste of time? Is it not? If it does nothing to help the children, let's get rid of it. Exactly. Yeah. And so time and time again, uh, when I'm in the field, I'm in the field a lot, I ask, if, if I have an employee, if I ask an employee, why do we do this? And they go, I don't know, it's just the way we've always done it. If I get that response from them, that's a flag for me. So I, I'm like, okay, why do we do this if it has nothing to do with the safety or well-being of a child? And so we, we do away with it. We change that. The great thing about making us a standalone agency because we can move quicker on changing policies rather than having it wait to go through the whole process through HHSC. But I want I the other good part of, of what's happened here is that I was really grateful that I got to spend one month with Judge Specia before he retired. And so we shared, there's a lot of things that Judge Specia had put into place that is now starting to see uh, great things happen. Number one is the way that he redesigned the way we train our caseworkers in the field. Mm -hmm. And that new model, and we've expounded that on a little bit more, has proven to be uh, very successful in letting these, because it's a tough job, guys. I'm going to tell you right now, there's people, if you rode along with a caseworker, you probably, I'm not going to do that. It's, there's frightening things that these people see, um, and, and it, not to me, I'm a cop, I've seen a lot of things, but on the same level, it's, it's, it's hard for them to take in, especially when they didn't live that, you know, they grew up a good lifestyle, and then they see our young people going through what they go through. So we're not losing as many through there. They get the shock factor out of the way, they go to the field, they go in the classroom, back in the field again, and if we're going to lose them, I want to lose them early. I don't want to lose them down the road where they're like, I'm going to give up. And so that has proven to be a very good model. Thank you, sir, because you did a good job. And there's a lot of other things that he's put into place will start, will start showing very good results. So we knew early on that model shows that we're going to keep employees longer. It's, it's bad for the child to see caseworker after caseworker after caseworker. That does a lot of trauma to this to the children. And the last thing I want to say is that, that 
we talked about funding here, and I know that in two more years, I'm gonna be going before our leaders again, and we can't forget about adult tech services right now. We're hurting and that. That population is growing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a huge problem that's coming up. We'll face that in two years when I go before our leaders. But I, I just wanna make sure that everybody knows that this executive team we have put in place are very mindful of taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. We know there's not a whole lot of money in there to go around. It's not their fault, it's not anyone's fault. So when we go to them, we know that we're gonna get maybe some, maybe not all, we know that. Is it a, is it a hard pitch to make to go and say, hey, look, it's a shortfall year, but I need half a billion or a billion dollars, and, and do you get any pushback from people saying, please, don't ask for so much. No, no, but I'm also understand how the process works. They know, they're, they're honest with me, they know how much money's in there. They can't, I mean, we're not the only person right. in government that needs money. Although I'm very compassionate that our children are at the top of the list mm -hmm. and our elderly. So that we're moving one step closer to going toward the uh, appealing to the community to come in and help us. Uh, through philanthropic work and uh, a lot of people have approached us and said you know we will give to you all for the other services that that the government can not provide because here's my point government alone cannot take care of the children the community needs to come in and help us and, and I, I definitely want to revisit that point I think that was sort of a, a permeating theme through SB 11 kind of the, the nonprofit or private sector role right. in all of this um, but representative Wu I've, I've seen you maybe uh, waiting to jump in um, I want to give you a shot I, I want to touch back on this since I, I got mentioned twice now um, <laughs> and I think this is an important topic enough to talk about it for a little bit longer so you know I, I know it's not politically safe for, for Cindy to talk about money in, in this way, and so I'm going to say it. Um, I, and I know you're going to say, you say like, well, money's not the problem. All the no, stuff I that you... I didn't say that. I said that's not... It's problem. not the only problem. <laughs> but the, all, what I'm telling you is this, in, in talking to uh, Commissioner Whitman, and talking to Commissioner Specia, and talking to people who actually work in the department, all the stuff that we want them to implement, all, all the changes we want them to do, they said, pretty much like, we, we're, we're trying to do it. We're trying to do it. All their special... Um, uh, Special items on the budget are like, we're trying to switch over to this. We're trying to give our additional training to our workers through that. We're trying to move this, this new computer program that's not 35 years old, yeah. right? And we're, you know, the, you know the, the monochrome green and white screens, <laughs> we're trying to move away from that. But that's a $25 million ask. Well, um, the same as the, the year before though as well, Gene. We, absolutely. And, and, and the so thing I'm is like... They don't have the money. I just want to make sure it's being properly... And for like example, for the, for the changes that you made, your, S, uh, your HP4, that's a $32 million lump. Um, you know, you said you want increased, uh, increased early intervention. I would love early, uh, more in, early intervention money. In fact, we put it in the budget and they got stripped back out. No, some of it stayed. Some of it stayed. Some of it stayed. But we actually need like double, triple that. Um, and you know, this, this idea that, I, I understand that it's very popular to say money doesn't solve everything, and I, I, I would agree with that. But when you, have, when you basically have nothing, it solves a whole lot of problems. Mm. Um, you know, some of the biggest issues, if, if, you know, we're talking about, uh, if you want to retain workers, I, I mean, I, I work in court almost every single day with case workers. And I, when I ever have a downtime with them, and, I, and there's nothing to do, I sit and I ask them, 
so tell me about your caseload. Tell me how life is right now. And about, you know, right after the session, they said, oh, it's still, it's still pretty awful. Um, we're still going crazy. I asked them again um, closer, uh, some people this last week, and they said, you know, it's a, it's a lot better. It's noticeably better. Our caseload went from, my case, this one lady's caseload went from about mid-40s, mid-40s, to about 29, which is still about double what it's recommended for the national average, but it's a hell of a lot better than mid-40s. So if we want to get that number lower, what's it going to take? It's going to take money. It's going to take hiring new workers. It's going to take people not leaving. Um, I've met a lot of people who left. Yeah. Representative Burkett, uh, because, because uh, Representative Wu brought up um, HB4, I was hoping we might talk, talk about that a little bit. Um, that was um, a bill that set aside some money to raise payments for, for, um, for kinship. Actually, yeah, right? actually what I did, and in, in everybody in here, including the commissioner, <laughs> were, participated in the interim work group that we did. And one thing that we all came to the table, table to agree to was that it's better for the children, for the child involved, to be in a family um, atmosphere, their family atmosphere. And we also, somebody they already know. Right, well, you know, somebody they know, say, you know, if you're removing a child from, say, from my, whoops, sorry, mm -hmm. from my, may, maybe my child, my child's child is being removed, and I would, as the grandparent, and not only grandparents, though, it could be an aunt or an uncle. Mm -hmm. We always kind of right. mm -hmm. fell back on it being the older member of the family, but if a member of the family wants to take that child, but they don't have in their budget you know, enough money to pay for feeding that child, for giving them the, the care they need, then it would automatically you know, go to foster care. That's not the best um, outcome for the child. It's not the most fiscally responsible outcome for the state, where what we um, actually ended up proposing through HB4 was if, if that family member is at 300% of poverty level or lower, then they could be, um, uh, they could qualify to receive 50% of what we would pay to a foster care family. Now foster care families are great. This is not a ding on foster care families, but the best outcome is for the child to be with the family member. Why well, we, we, we see a about a 14 month stay if they're with a family member. It can be double that with the foster care, and some children that don't even, um, they, they will end up aging out of the system. So this is, you know, overall it's, it's the best um, outcome for the state, for the child, and fiscally for the budget. Sure. Why cap it at 50% of foster care? What's the, what's the point we of We had a lot of debate that? about that. Um, actually, and, and Jean had put on a, a um, graduated amount, which I liked and went over to, but it has to get through both sides. And over at the Senate, they were just more comfortable with a flat 50% pop, you know, 50% rate at um, the 300% poverty level. Mm. Um, I also had a, a kind of a safeguard in there because you have to. There's always somebody who's going to work the system, unfortunately, and it doesn't matter what system it is, and try to take advantage and get monies that they shouldn't have. So we put um, a safeguard in there to make sure that if you are, say, I report that my child, you know, my daughter here is abusing her child so I can get that child so I can receive the money, that is a big problem. So we put some safeguards in there to make sure there's a penalty for that. Um, because what you're doing is not only are you defrauding the state, but you're taking the resources of those, of those caseworkers that you sure, talked about sure. away from an actual abuse case, and we don't want that kind of thing mm -hmm. to start happening. Sure, but I suspect, I haven't seen the numbers, but I suspect that's not super prevalent, right? That would be a minority of cases. In, well, that would in, be, 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 it's almost, 
I'm not going to say it's impossible. It'd be very difficult to play the system that way, by the way, the safeguards that the legislature's put in. I was concerned about that as well, but I just don't see how that could happen. It still has to go for a judge when the child's placed. Sure. So, so that's one way of expanding capacity. You know, capacity, I think, is a word everybody hears yes. a lot in the system. It's finding, having enough homes for children, but also having enough of the right kinds of homes, you know, for, the, for children with specific needs. Um, Commissioner, would you, do you think it's fair to say that uh, capacity remains one of the most vexing issues for oh, emergency? Absolutely. So, and that's another one part of our executive team's goals is to continue to build capacity. How do you do that without more money? Well, I mean, right now I think we, well, you're always going to need more money. As, we, as inflation goes along, it takes more money to take care of children. Now, the capacity issue for us that's the biggest problem, I think Commissioner Blackstone's in here will agree with me, is that for those that are in the intense and specialized uh, category, Kids it with the takes more. That's right. We, we don't have any problem placing basic children or moderate. It's the, those two upper level ones that need the most therapeutic help to get them uh, well. And so there's where a lot of the funding goes to is for those children. Now, to find those organizations, those providers that provide that kind of therapy, uh, therapeutic therapy for these children is difficult to find. It's, it's, and it takes more money for these children. The other thing is it's a bigger problem for us that a lot of people are not aware of and, and it make it part of my life to make sure that it's more awareness is our children that age out fall into sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. yes. Now that's a whole different category uh, to try to get these, these children into uh, facilities that that can get them the proper care and treatment so that they don't fall into that. And, and so that's another big challenge for us that we're working on today. Uh, we have very few providers that, that take those kind of children in and, and take care of them. So it's, it's a big, big problem for us. I think it's two RTCs. We have two. That's yep. You're correct, yeah, Reverend. Yeah. We have two. That's just two. We have a lot of children that are in that category, and that's why we're taking steps now to combat that. For the entire state, along with that. Yes, right. that's correct. And, and I, I'd like to come back to that point. Um, but first, Representatives Minharis and Frank, I wanted to give you guys a chance um, to, to jump in here. Looking ahead to 2019, um, assuming this is still an interest, you know, a, a, a legislative interest of yours, where, where do you see you know, the one biggest opportunity for reform or changes next session? Um, I'll let either of you go first. I think one of the areas that I, I think we need to focus on are, are the children that age out and, and getting them the opportunities and resources they need to thrive. Mm. Um, you know, there, there, there are a number of, of children who, because they end up in the system and age out, maybe don't have the uh, same accessibility to, um, to, the work, to workforce development or going into college and getting a, a degree. Um, I, I worry about that, and I also, you know, <clears throat> visiting with the attorney at Lightums back in San Antonio, they say uh, they feel that there needs to be more placement opportunities when they age out because they don't necessarily have the tools to find an apartment or, you know, they said that we, we need to find uh, maybe a transitional place for them uh, to get them up and, and running and be independent in life. Mm. So uh, that, is, that is one particular area that I definitely want to focus on in 2019. We, we got a lot of work to do still. Sure. So right. I, think we, I think we all have a continued interest in working in this area. I, I think the biggest issue that we're going to address, uh, there's, there's a number of money and others, but uh, is the continuation of the community-based care 
the reality is we just set it up to expand uh, San Antonio, uh, where Representative Menjares is, is out for RFP uh, up in North Texas, uh, Region 2 is. Uh, but we need to look and make sure that that is actually providing better services to kids. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll need to make a decision of how much to expand it and whether to, ma whether to make tweaks. But that, you know, we certainly can't prognosticate now what exactly we need to do because we need to see how well it's implemented and, and is it having better uh, results for kids. But we, we set it up such that we're going to have to step in if we want to uh, continue to expand and improve foster care throughout the state. Sure, and 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 so we're on the same page. Community-based care. This is what was formerly known as as redesign, foster care redesign, yeah. right? And it's it's relying on sort of outside contractors to help sort of build capacity. Well, say it's, I mean, it's really it's breaking up the state right now. We try to run foster care and recruit foster homes all from Austin, and it doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's one of the it's, it's a real challenge for Austin to reach out to the different organizations throughout the state. And, you know, all of our all of our cities are much different. Um, and it, it really is breaking up the state, kind of like we do with school districts. It'd be like trying to run the entire school district you know, having an Austin ISD that runs the entire state, it doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. and, and so this, this is not the investigative side of, of CPS, that stays the way it is, but the foster care side, the recruiting, training, and, and managing that system mm -hmm. uh, is done more at the community level. It's done that way in Fort Worth now, there's two other regions coming on, and we'll know where foster care is working and where it isn't. Mm -hmm. are, are you finding, in, you know, I, I know Senate Bill 11, had, uh, you know, part of it is, is looking to expand the community-based care model, and we're still sort of in the process, but are you finding that the, that the deal is, is sweet enough, frankly, uh, to, to entice providers and, you know, high-quality providers to actually want to participate in the program? We'll see. I'll let him, I, and, I've, and I've talked to, actually, we just met last week with, with a lot of the providers, and I, I, I think the money will be there. There's no reason that it should cost them more. Keep in mind, these are nonprofits. These are not, you know, everybody wants to go contractors and privatize. Sure. Almost all of these are nonprofits that are raising and spending their own money to help, and yet somehow people are taking that and acting like that's horrible, that they're not actually government entity, right? We're, we're privatizing. Really? We're privatizing with organizations whose sole mission is to take care of kids. Sure. And they're, by the way, where we're doing it, they're doing it a lot better than we are, and that's somehow bad. Well, well, not implying that it's bad, but I think even a nonprofit needs, you know, a certain amount with, of funding in order to actually provide. Yeah, the yeah care with, without a doubt, without a doubt, the, the, and and certainly the state doesn't lack for oversight on things. <laughs> uh, there's, yeah, yeah, um, or forms anyway. It, it, it's not the, uh, this is a point that we touched a lot on, on, on uh, during, during the hearings. I think, and I've tried to explain this, this issue so many times and people don't understand, still don't understand it. And I, I think it's maybe it's because it's, it's a legal issue, but you have to understand that when we're talking about CPS kids, ultimately we're talking about in, in the court case that, that this is leading up to, we're talking about the termination of the parents. In the civil world, we call that the death penalty of the civil world. Because in the criminal world, we have the death penalty. There is no higher sanction in the civil world than taking your child. There is no higher sanction. This is the death penalty of the, of, of the civil world. Once it's done, it's game over. And what we're saying is, under redesign, the state is still the actor with their finger on that trigger. Under Community-based care under SB, uh, SB 11, ultimately it is a non-state entity 
that has their finger on the trigger. As an attorney, I have a real concern about someone who does not answer to a state agency, who is not directly responsive to the legislature or to another elected body who has their finger on the trigger. And I, I know maybe that's I'm the only one who is concerned about that. Well, and don't, don't, don't mistake not agreeing with not understanding. Yeah. The judge is the one who ultimately makes it, that decision, not the state. I, I, so, and I know you, so, but I know so you so say the, that, but I, from, a, from an attorney's perspective, you know, we're talking about the judge is an is arbitrator of two different sides, or the jury, or a jury. They're the arbitrator of who, two different sides. You have a plaintiff and you have a defendant. The parents of the defendant, and my, my question during this whole process was, as you left DFPs in there, when community-based care happens, who is the plaintiff? Is the state still the plaintiff? Or is now this independent, non-governmental entity the plaintiff? Who is the client who makes the final decision? Me, as, a, as an attorney, when I have clients, I have to say to my client, I will give you advice, I will carry out your legal wishes, and ultimately at the end of the day, even if you decide to make a bad decision, I will follow that bad decision as long as it's legal. Okay? But a county attorney who represents, uh, it represents whoever CPS is now in this, in this context is, who's the client? <clears throat> who is the person who ultimately says, I want reunification, Versus, I want termination. Judge. No, that's not. That's not it. I'm trying to, that's what I'm telling you. It, that you're not. It, it, who is the client? Who is the client that says I want this versus I want that? The judge or the jury ultimately makes a decision based on what the facts are. Yeah. And, but and they're not I mean, the person who pulls the trigger. I mean, we're we're, we're relitigating. There's a tremendous number of protections in place for the kids. I mean, the yeah. I, I think at the end of the day. The community-based model will provide much better services to kids. It is in Fort Worth. Uh, I believe it will continue. And I also think that we will monitor it. The reality is if any of the stuff that you're talking about comes to pass, then we can make those changes. That's why we meet every two years. Uh, but there is no question that the current system is not working well. There's no question it's working better in Fort Worth. And that's one of the things that we are going to monitor. And clearly, we're going to have some debate about it next session. Sure. <laughs> it sounds like it. Um, well, Commissioner, do you, do you agree with that? Do you agree that, it's, uh, that, the, that this model is working better in Fort Worth? And sort of in addition, as you're looking for, for new providers, <coughs> I mean, how's that going? Well, to answer your question on the Fort Worth, yes, it is working. Yeah. It is working very well. Their numbers are, are fantastic. Here's the deal. Can you find other providers who want to be Fort Worth? Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, they, and they're, they're, they're going to compete if we let them do it. But here's the deal. In order for it to work properly, we have to adequately fund that, 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 pro, that, that program. And I, and I say this, I don't mean because I love you guys, you all are behind me all the time, but let me tell you, I said this when I in the hearing. You know, these providers raise 70, they, 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 we provide them 70% of what it takes to take care of our children. They have to raise 30%, and that's in the millions. That's in the millions. And so there's always this fear like, oh, they're nonprofits or they're for profit. We don't want to make sure they make money. How does a provider expand capacity if they don't make a profit for someone? They, got, they build, they build, they build, they build so they can provide capacity for the children. So I use this example. And when I testified, I said, okay, let's tell, let's tell TxDOT all the people that build our highways up here, because they're all contractors, build the highways for 70%. We're only going to give you 70 gold rates, 30%. They're for profit. That's just the way it is. But we cannot expect our providers to provide for our children if we don't provide them adequate funding. And that has to be, and that, that's more money. 
we got to give them more money. And so we're trying to get that rate right, especially for those two upper categories of children that really need the help. Um, so we, we're, I guess, kind of in the home stretch. So if you've got audience questions, start thinking of them. We'll, we'll have you come up in just a couple minutes. Um, but before we do that, I, I wanted to end with one last question sort of, and give each of you a chance to take a stab at it. Um, and, and we brought up earlier uh, sex trafficking. And, and the Tribune earlier um, this year had, had a series where I, I spoke to, as a reporter, ended up speaking to a number of um, uh, former foster youth who had ended up um, in, you know, in the sex trafficking trade through very unfortunate circumstances. But before any of that happened, um, the, really, the, the thing that struck me was that in every case, in every, you know, every child that I spoke to, before they had ended up in the CPS system, you know, in the child welfare system, um, there, were, there were common threads. There were foremost poverty. Um, evictions were common, you know, um, loved ones were caring for, for sick parents who, who, you know, had medical bills they couldn't pay. All of this leading up to, these were sort of the circumstances well before the child ever ended up in, in foster care. And so my question is, um, when we debate all, you know, fixes to the foster care system, why aren't we prioritizing sort of the front end? Why aren't we talking about lifting families out of poverty or doing other things to kind of prevent the removal of the child from the start. And so I know this is you know, a big question, but uh, uh, maybe I'll start with you, Representative Minara, as I haven't picked on you as much today. One of the things that I um, believe is so important in addressing this system is really putting resources in early intervention mm -hmm. and prevention. Um, if we do that, if we put the needed funds funding there and, and make it evidence-based, uh, that will save so much money at the back end sure. because the problem just escalates. But is that DFPS's role or is that the state's role? I mean, I, I what's think the it's, difference? Right, right, I think it's both. Um, DFPS can definitely provide some resources, but I think it's the state that needs to take the lead and understand that we need to invest in our families and our communities. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is very important is we need to start uh, making sure that we put in place some prevention uh, measures. That's the only way and uh, you know, we can get the families the assistance and the support that they need to make sure that they, they thrive, to prevent cycles continuing. Uh, and I agree, I had HB mm -hmm. 1549 and one of the key things on that was early prevention. Right. Because as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's cheaper to, um, to not have them in there in the first place. The, the, um, the way you distribute that can be a little bit uh, difficult to do. You want to do it through community-based um, programs. Mm. Uh, when you have uh, an individual, a family member, maybe you're a teenage right. mom, you're unemployed, there's a drug issue, and your mom was a teenage mom, unemployed, and then her mom was. You sure. see that cycle going on, and a lot of that is they simply don't, they haven't, um, they haven't learned how to get out of that cycle. They don't have the same um, uh, parental guidance that we had right. and we take for granted is so how do you how do you um, transmit that you're going to do it in your churches you're going to do it in your in your schools when you see the need hmm. but should it be a state sure program are, doing that is, i'm sorry should it be a state 
program? I mean, do you envision it's gonna, like It's a, like, like James said earlier, it's not going to be one item. You know, it's going to be a community-based thing. It's going to be um, philanthropic organizations that see needs um, on the Hopes Advisory in Dallas, and that's a little bit of everybody. It's going to be your churches getting involved um, because they're, you know, your churches are the backbone of many communities, especially small ones. So we need to make sure that we use every single asset out there to, um, to do the best we can for these children. And always the goal being, when possible, to get them back to their families. You know, that's why HB4 was important to me. When you take them away from their family union and their schools that they're used to, and that's another you know, part of that community, it makes it hard for the child to feel less um, isolated which I think as they get older, you know, and, and you, you're in one foster care family, then you go to another foster care family, and then you age out, and that's when you have these issues. I think that is not the issue, but I think that's a, that's a portion of the issue that puts those kids at risk for, for getting into human trafficking or prostitution. So it's gonna be a community effort, and that, some of that is state, some of that is funding. Funding is important. But as I mentioned earlier, we put a lot more funding here. To think that we're not going to look at our funding again for 10 years, I think is a little yeah. you know, yeah. off the wall. Yeah. We're going to have to look at what we've put into place Four this session and see what worked, what didn't, what we missed, look at all those factors together, and then move forward to the next thing that's going to make this be a um, system that's going to protect our kids when possible, get them back with their families, and if not, make sure that they can be productive members of society as they grow up. Representative Frank, where do you see the state's role in uh, this prevention piece? Well, I, think, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons that you don't discuss it in, or sometimes we don't discuss it in issues like this, I certainly don't think that's the role of the FPS. Um, that we may, we may do it through state programs, some of the state programs we have help people, some of them actually hold them down in poverty. But there's a number of, but, but in terms of what DFPS ought to do, I absolutely don't think they should be doing that. They have a very difficult job. They're already getting involved in the legal side of things. They're getting involved in foster care. They have a very specific role and really, I think, to run it well, need to be able to focus and do excellent those things it's asking to do without getting into, um, without getting big into the prevention side of things. Not, not saying the state shouldn't do that, but I'm just saying that's, that's uh, in my opinion, a big stretch. And I know there is already some uh, preventative in there, but I would hate for us to see within that, that organization. And again, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad to do that, because I think, yeah, if we can prevent things early, that's great. Whether the government does a great job of that or not, sometimes I think we hurt. That has to be determined. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that, that would be a specific program. I, think, you know, I don't think anybody up here thinks that preventing these bad situations is a bad idea. It's a great idea. Whether the government does it, churches do it, whether you know, individuals. You know, the one thing I would say is when you look at our foster care system, when you really boil it down, the foster kids are in there because of, in 99% of the cases, because of irresponsible decisions of the parent. And it is not going to fix, the state's role is not fixed until there is a responsible adult back in their child's life. So if we let them get out without having somebody that says, you're mine, then there's going to be a problem. And that's not always possible. Sometimes the kid doesn't want it. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of reasons. But I guess the philosophical question for me is, would that same irresponsible decision have been made had the parents been in a different situation economically. Yeah. No, and, whatever, and but, I think you, you, that's the challenge. You have to go case by case. I mean, the reality is, you know, what sometimes people call poverty is because the person's on drugs. You know, now, is that their fault? Is that someone, you know, I, you have to go case by case. Sometimes, yeah, it's, it's poverty. It's a medical condition, those kind of things. That's one answer. Some of the drug answers are, are other answers. You really have to go case by case. Presumably, I see you jumping in. <laughs> I mean, I think this is the crux of it. 
I think this is the, the, the sort of like the crossroads of where we are and why we can't ever get above water um, is because, you know, Ripson Frank wants them to bail water out of the ship and not plug the holes. And I think, no, that's, I mean. That's exactly what I, I want. So, no, no, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, that's, I don't mean that. That's, in, that's in, in, but I'm saying like, ship to look. See. You know, the, the idea that no, no, I mean, wait, the wait, war wait. on poverty and the government money, that has created yeah, I mean, much you have of this, the situation. You have this idea that, okay, I get it. You have a philosophy that government should intervene as little as possible. Um, and that churches and community groups should come in whenever, the pos whenever they can. But you know what? Churches and, and community groups don't come in on this stuff. You know why? Because it's really, really complex. It's really expensive and it's really hard to do. Um, this early intervention stuff. Uh, we have programs like nurse family partnerships. Those are incredibly complex. You have to have trained mm -hmm. professional nurses who come in and, and talk to young mothers who are, would almost certainly become uh, CPS defendants. But those things are really expensive and they're really complicated to do. Nonprofits, there might be one or two nonprofits in the entire state who could even run a small program like that. And there's all this other stuff. This, this idea that you know people just want to be bad parents because they want to use drugs. But we don't talk about, hey, what if they have a pre-existing mental health issue and what they're doing is they're using drugs to self-medicate, to feel normal so they can, they can survive. What about if people have serious mental illness and can't control the behavior, but yet we have no, no ability to get them treatment, we have no ability to get them medicine, because if we did help them in the beginning, that would be a big government. And, you know, you know we could spend more money on early invention. Commissioner uh, Whitman has the ability right now to slosh his funds around and shove a whole lot more money into, uh, into early intervention. Do you know why we don't? Because it's triage. Because early intervention is expensive. Um, caring for those top level, uh, high, high level kids, that's really expensive too. So instead of spending money there, so instead of spending it in the beginning, we take most of our money and spend it where we get the maximum use per dollar. We, get, we take the kids in the middle who are fairly easy to take care of, and then we can take care of the maximum number of kids for the small amount of money that we do have. The, the good news is, really, we agreed on a lot of things. We're talking about what we disagree on. Uh, we agreed on kinship care, which is going to work better. We agreed on setting the agency as a standalone agency, and we agreed, almost all of us, on community-based foster care, and I think those are going to create situations where these kids are better taken care of, and I think give uh, Whit, uh, Commissioner Whitman the tools uh, to help run the agency better. Well, you know, I want to make a comment on Representative Wu is correct in one aspect because uh, uh, we need uh, more funding and prevention. I, because if we're, could, <laughs> we, uh, all we're doing is, is we're, we're just treating uh, this chronic illness. It, I put it in it, this, this, thing that's going to continue if we don't get on the front end and prevent it. Now, I want, I'm not going to get into this social dissertation on what causes them to stay on drugs or what. I just want you all to understand this. And I understand this from being in my world before I came here as a law enforcement officer and dealing with a lot of people that because a child doesn't have a pair of shoes doesn't mean he's neglected. He's poor. So. My workers understand that, and they also understand that, um, you know, prevention is the key 
to this. And we did ask for a lot of it. We didn't get it, and I understand that. There was a portion of it we got. But it is, we pay now, or we're going to pay a lot more later. Always. And as the longer we wait, the interest rate on those dollars continue to rise. Because right. the ultimate thing is, we don't take care of our children now, they're going to end up in the criminal justice system. And we don't want them to go there. We don't want our children to come to CPS. That's the whole deal. Prevent them from coming into the system. And we do that through prevention money. And it's expensive, but it's worth it now. It is. But you also want to make sure that that money is going where it's going to have the biggest impact. And when we have a budget where 75% of our budget is education and Medicaid, which is what this all falls under, you have to make sure the dollars that you are gearing that way are benefiting the children the best way, making sure you're getting the, the young mothers out of a cycle, making sure you're hitting, hitting mental health issues. And that, and that all comes together, and it's yeah. not all in the DFPS budget. Right. Right. Mental health yeah. money is all over the, Medi the mm -hmm. Medicaid portion yeah. of our budget. And it would require us as good managers to that's make right. sure that we are good stewards of that money to make sure that it's effective. And, so, exactly. and that's where yeah. good leadership comes and in. And when we see, and that's why James was making the point of, let's see where it is. Um, we've been, what, three months since regular session? Yeah. And this fine gentleman over here and his group of fine workers are trying to put into effect the suggestions that we have mandated upon them. And as we see the um, results that we get and the outcomes that we get, that's when we can come back next session and say, okay, did we get a good outcome for those dollars we put in there? Should we gear them somewhere else? Should we indeed give them more? But we can't make that decision today. Yeah. We, can, we can speculate on it, but we're gonna have to see what kind of results we get from the changes that we suggested after our work group over the interim. On that note, I'd like to uh, go ahead and open it up to audience questions. Please go ahead and line up uh, at the back mics and we'll take your questions. And we'll start over here with this gentleman. Please uh, just state your name for the record. Uh, Glenn Williams. My question is if one of these nonprofit organizations, after doing this for a period of time, decides they will not renew with, either they can't or they won't be able to renew without a significant increase in state funding, and the legislature decides after looking at it that they either can't or won't increase that, that state funding, what is the game plan at that time? You no longer have CPS doing the foster care work, the re reunification, what is the plan? So yeah, the question being if... Well, yeah, no. okay, so yes, we those scenarios have played out in our executive team meetings, many of them wondering what would we do. Well, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but what we do is we go back to our leaders immediately and start talking to them saying this is about to happen. What do we need to do? And we solve that problem. Hopefully that will never happen to us, but it could. Well, and so, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir, go ahead. Well, and, and, and it happened under redesign where there was a region that didn't work and the state took that back over. Those workers are still in place, right? So the state takes over the, the, the leadership of it, but at least in that case, it's still just that region. Well, so if, how long are the conservatorship workers going to continue on the payroll if the, their work's being done by the people? They're not. Well, they're, they're going to, they will, they will transfer, there will be a transfer when the work is done. In fact, this was one of the issues that we talked about in terms of what it costs, is those workers will have to transfer over to that nonprofit, and they will be, they will be a regional, they will be working, and, 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 you know, people are nervous about that, and I understand that, but the flip side is most everybody would rather work for somebody who's close to them. So the bosses, if you will, are going to be out in Abilene and San Antonio. That's who they'll be working for but they won't be working for the state, the conservatorship workers. 
won't be. But is there any guarantee that the nonprofit's going to hire all the state workers? No, there's a guarantee that we want the best employees there. There are some of those I'm sure that we don't want. And I'm not trying to be cold, but anybody who thinks we ought to keep some bad workers, some of the folks that uh, I, I have met a, a whole lot of great employees at CPS, mm -hmm. a ton of them, the vast majority of them. But this is not about guaranteeing jobs for government workers. This is about getting better, better services for kids. And I guarantee you those, those companies, those, those organizations are going to want to hire all of the good employees, every one of them. Yeah, but we can't. You but can't it's not guarantee a guarantee. That. It's not a guarantee. But, you know, but it's not about the worker. It's about the kids. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll, next question over here. Hello. Uh, I'm, for 20 years, I was on the board of an emergency shelter in Grayson County, which was a uh, private nonprofit partnership with the government. Uh, we had an emergency shelter, and we had uh, a prevention program that went along that was funded through STAR funds, services to at-risk youth. Uh, parent training, kid training, the, the trainings went on. Uh, in concert with one another so that as the parents gain skills, the kids gain skills, and uh, so it worked really well. Mm -hmm. and, and you're talking again about creating that kind of entity and how, you, how are you going to go about funding it? One of the biggest problems that private nonprofits have is that it gets to be a point of chasing dollars because every time the legislature meets, they change priorities, so. So the question is, how do you maintain that funding yeah. over how, time? How do you maintain that funding? And also, with the understanding that these nonprofits in smaller communities and as you're reaching out, uh, they're the same people who get called on to do flood relief and help pe build people's homes and feed uh, the hungry. So those funds are really stretched, so yeah. I'm just wondering how you make that uniform and... and sure. You know, I, I had predicted at when... I, and I voted for SB 11. Um, I thought there was a lot of good stuff in there, and I, I, I was willing to give um, community-based community care a shot uh, of doing this. And I predicted, I told people, look, I think it's going to happen one of two ways. One is um, it'll be done by a county who's willing to take county money and supplement what's, uh, what, what the shortfall will be, or it'll have to be a, a organization that's supported by a very large nonprofit behind it. So like a Gates Foundation, Arnold Foundation type thing, who's willing to say, here's an additional $25 million. Um, ACH, the, the people who are doing the Fort Worth redesign, um, have said like, look, um, we'll do it, but we want our caseworkers to do, have a case level of, of, of around 15 to one, which, that's about half of what it is for a normal DFPS worker, even for Actually, like, it's about 19 to 1 right now. But it depends which case workers you're talking about. Um, On average. So, you know, you know, because the, the nonprofits don't want to subject their people to the same hell that like, DFPS workers get subjected to. Um, and they say, well, we won't do it unless we can get that. And so the only way for that's going to happen is if you have a, non, a nonprofit come in. I don't know what, what's gonna happen if the nonprofit says, okay, we've done this for five years, you know, you're on your own now. Or if, this, if the, I don't know what's gonna happen if um, we come in with another massive um, uh, shortfall and we say, well, everyone's gonna take cuts this time, not just, and, and DFPS won't be protected. And if that, if that nonprofit now suddenly is gonna see a looming budget cut on their horizon, 
and, and their foundation won't match it, I don't know what's going to happen. Those are all good questions for those, those nonprofits. Uh, we'll take the next question over here. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Kevin McPherson. And I have a question about the LGBT um, kids that are going through the foster care system. I know there was a bill that passed that essentially allows them to be discriminated against or LGBT uh, foster parents or adoptive parents to not like, be able to be part of the process. Um, there's a whole lot of statistics out there that are just really bad for these kids who are going through the system. Um, so I'm wondering what is going to be done to protect the LGBT Kids in the there's, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, I'm assuming you're talking about 3859, which is conscience protection, allows uh, churches and others to participate without being told they have to do certain things, and so, you know, which is called discrimination. The reality is those LGBT couples, and I think we need, we need them, they do great work in foster care. I've talked to a number of them. Uh, they are still uh, welcome at the vast majority of locations, but we are not forcing some organizations uh, to quote, do business with them. And if, if that's discrimination, that's what, that's what you call it. We're, it's an all skate, everybody is welcome there. And there is nothing that discriminates against an LGBT kid, nothing at all. So. Um, Quick question on top of that. What, ab yeah. what about when they're put in situations or put with families who don't accept them for being LGBT? That but, causes right. a lot of problems. Well, I mean, that, that, and, and, and that is true, but what about, if, I mean, you could also put that same kid, you put a, a Christian kid or a Muslim kid in a home that doesn't accept them that's that's their job to make sure that they don't put a kid where they are not accepted. That's part of having foster care capacity, right? Because not all of us are the same. My home uh, worked very well for our two boys, but we have four other boys. We have a home for boys. Don't give me a girl. That doesn't mean I discriminate against girls. That just means that's not a great fit for me. Right. This so is an this is an, right. So this fit. is an all skate. So a foster home doesn't have to be willing to take everybody. A foster home needs to be willing to take something. And then it's their job to make the best fit. To, and they're supposed to actually consider sexual orientation. They're supposed to consider religion. They're supposed to consider all those things to make the best fit possible. And we want LGBT homes. We want Catholic homes. We want all homes. And all homes can play. It, but but and, we're not making a political statement when we say, you know what, you can't deal with us as a state. You can't help kids unless you'll do it our way. We're allowing everybody. Can I just add one thing that we wanted to create a new computerized system to allow a DFPS to be able to do that, mm -hmm. but that budget item was knocked out. Because yeah. um, right now, basically, DFPS does their uh, placements basically by pen and paper. Yeah. Which know, is we, we put almost a billion dollars into a new computer system for them session before last, so I'm confused where that comment is coming from. I don't know. I mean, I... <laughs> I mean, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what computer system would cost a billion dollars. Well, um, we, put, we put several million dollars. Uh, pretty sure you I mean, know. several million dollars. So this is, this is an agency that has like... Whatever the dollar amount is off the top of my in head. In the interest of getting to more audience questions, I think we'll, yeah. we'll go on to the next one. Uh, thank you. They have more than one computer system. My name is Elizabeth Parrish, and uh, lately I've been reading uh, a lot of news articles uh, talking about... Uh, some recent deaths over the past few years of children um, who were in abusive home situations, either physically abusive or neglectful, um, and they had records that came out after their deaths that showed that there were caseworkers, um, and this is in Texas as well, but across the U.S., um, there were caseworkers that had come to their home several times, were aware that they were being severely abused or neglected, and yet they weren't removed from the homes. 
I understand that right now, uh, part of the problem with our foster care system is there's a huge shortage of resources, uh, huge overflow, uh, running out of places to put these kids. Um, but regardless of that, um, why were these children still not removed from the home? Uh, you know, once caseworkers were aware of how serious the situation was. Yeah, okay, so let me answer that. Okay, so uh, does everybody have a perspective of how many children were taken care of on any given day? It's 30,000, 30,000. Do we have deaths? Yes. Are we ever gonna stop and prevent every, every death, every child that dies is precious. I don't care, and, and if it's our fault, it's our fault. But we do the best we can to make sure that those children are removed, and it, I don't care if there's a worry about capacity. You know, you've heard our children have to stay in offices from time to time. If the child needs to come to the office and so that we save that child, it's going to come to the office until we find a placement for that child. Now, lately, we haven't had any of those children in the office because we're doing a better job of finding placements. So in addressing that, I want you to know that I personally, with my team, once a month review every death of a child that happens in the state of Texas. Whether it's in our care or not in our care, we review those fatalities. And we do that to learn from it. And do we make mistakes? Yes, mistakes are made. But I want you to understand that there's people out there that do bad things to children. We can never stop that. If I had the formula to stop every death of a child, every chief of police and sheriff uh, would come to me and say, how do you stop that? Because that is great. We have people out there that are doing horrendous things to children, our children. And so one of the other things is, this question was asked about, you know, that I have seen that's very startling for me that on the last 10 fatalities that I reviewed, the one drug that had a common denominator in every one of these deaths, marijuana. Mm -hmm. Marijuana. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't care if that's your choice, if you want to do it, but when you, when you combine that with a child, it could be like the same thing with drinking. It doesn't, it, we, we have moms that are using drugs, use marijuana, fall, go to sleep with the child, unsafe sleep, and then suffocates the child or they get high on marijuana and decide they're gonna go in and do a little more partying and leave their kids in the car and car seats and they, they die because of heat exhaustion, heat stroke. That, that's startling to me because right now we don't have the problem that most other states, bigger states have up north where um, opioids is now the big problem with the parents uh, killing their children. But it's marijuana here. And, and it's, that's sad that when they leave the hospital, Having a child, the child even tests positive for marijuana. <clears throat> they're still using it while they're pregnant. So I want to say that. Um, thank you all. I'm afraid we're out of time, but um, if you wouldn't mind joining me in a round of applause. Thank you very much. <laughs>